Amen. As we continue this series, Our God Reigns, as we walk through Romans, the announcement of the gospel is an announcement that our God is the God who reigns. The Apostle Paul, like a good counselor, gives us a strategy that you might employ on your own self that you should implement in your marriage or in your relationships with your roommate or with your boss, and that is you should stop mind reading. That's what this passage is about. You may not realize it. Most of us do an incredible amount of mind reading, and most of us are horrendous interpreters of the reasons and wherefores and whys of what other people are up to. But that don't stop us from doing it. You're in the grocery store. You're walking along. You see a friend down the way. You wave at them. They clearly make eye contact with you. They do not wave back. They turn around in sure disdain for you as a person. And they never acknowledge your existence. And you begin a process. Right there in the food city. Right there in the Walgreens and the Walmart and the Whole Foods, wherever you spend your grocery dollars. And you start to imagine, why are they so uppity? Why do they hate me so much? Why do they think they're so much better than everybody else? My goodness, how snooty and snobby and smug. And as they turn the corner, you've already determined all the reasons and all the motivations for why they've snubbed you. You know it for sure. You're having a moment there, an out-of-body experience in the food city where you're imagining all the worst things about this person who clearly hates you, who clearly saw you, who was clearly trying to rub your nose in their rejection of you. And then you turn it on yourself. Gosh, maybe I... Did I not invite him to a party? The last time we talked, did I say something offensive? Maybe I hurt their feelings and I didn't know about it. Maybe I spoke too harshly to their child. Maybe they hate me. Maybe they're telling everybody else that they hate me. And you have a sort of neurotic stew going on that you're stirring. And nobody knows it because you're in the food city. Thank you. And of course, if you had the courage or the wherewithal to know that there's no wisdom in trying to decide why people do what they do or to determine for sure why someone said what they said or not said what they didn't say or didn't do what they didn't do or did what they did. You might just go to that person later and say, Hey, I noticed you've been doing being a jerk face to me. Now, don't say that because then you're going to put them off and then put them on the defensive. But you might just check your impressions with them. I noticed that you snubbed me uh, injuriously in the store the other night and destroyed my soul and then stamped it like with con- concrete. And they might say, what day was that? Oh, Thursday. Yeah, yeah, we had a, we had a kid in the hospital that day. I hadn't slept all night. I, I was trying to, I didn't even see you. I, I was thinking about where the grape juice was and I couldn't even find it. I didn't know whether I was washing or hanging out that day. And you suddenly realize, huh, I had just come up with this whole thing that drastically affected me for days that was completely imaginary. 
And a great number of you live all of your life like that. But Paul thinks it would be incredibly dangerous for you to live your life like that with God. And we're incredibly susceptible to doing that with God because we can't just go to him in the same kind of way and get an immediate response to check our impressions. But graciously, God has given us his impressions. And Paul wants us to have them today to say, look, don't mind read God. Because here's what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. He's telling us on the tail end of a passage where he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. He's telling us about the groaning existence of the Christian who groans alongside creation, hoping for what he doesn't yet have, longing for what she doesn't yet embrace. And he says, here's what's going to happen. The danger is that you're going to mind-read God and you're going to come to all sorts of erroneous conclusions and you're most susceptible if you're a believer. You see, pagans in suffering stop believing in God. Christians don't. Christians don't stop believing in God. What they do is they start believing horrible things about him. C.S. Lewis, in the wake of his wife's passing in a grief observed, said, there's no danger of me now stopping to believe in God. What's dangerous is that I'll now start believing the most terrible things about him, like, oh, so this is the kind of God you are. I shouldn't be surprised. Oh, I can't trust you. Oh, you're not looking out for me. Oh, you hate me. Oh, I must have done something bad and I can't get out from under it. Oh, you're not acting on my behalf. Oh, you don't care about my little bitty problems. You've got a world to tend to. You start having what Kelly Capick in his new book, Embodied Hope, channeling John Owen. You start having hard thoughts about God. That's the most dangerous thing that suffering can do. That agitation and trouble and unmet expectation and dissatisfaction in your relationships and dismay at your job, for the Christian, for someone who knows God as their father, there is a great deal of trouble that comes when trouble comes. Because we start suddenly to wonder, does God like us? Is he mad at us? Is he getting me for what I did last Tuesday for how I spoke to my wife this morning? Is he pummeling me? Why is he heaping on? Why is he piling on? And of course, the danger of having hard thoughts about God is that in the same way that no sane child is going to routinely depend on and run to a frightening and terrifying and erratic father, So neither will you seek dependence and closeness and communion with a God that you think hard thoughts about. So Paul is giving you resources that you can apply to your own diseases and poisonous thoughts that would turn hard against God to remind yourself, in fact, He is not what you're thinking in the moment of your trouble. But the challenge of a passage like this is you've heard it a lot. 
You've been to funerals. You've had someone in the moment of your grief say these words to you and then you wanted to hit them in the face. You know Romans 8.28. You've seen it on Pinterest. You've seen it on a Thomas Kincaid painting. I like the laughter I'm getting over here. That's good. Makes me feel good. So I'm trying to spin this around a little bit so we might be able to hear it again. And to say, here's what the apostle would want you to know. God is tirelessly arranging and rearranging all the aspects of your life so that he might realize his remarkable aspirations for you. That's what Paul's up to saying here. God is tirelessly arranging and rearranging all the aspects of your life so that he might realize the remarkable aspirations that he has for you. And if you're able to embrace this, it can be like a warm shower when the bitterness and the chill of life threatens to undo you. And we know, Paul says, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Paul says he works tirelessly, arranging and rearranging. He's working all things to good. It's important when you are tempted to have hard thoughts to remember, first of all, that God is working all the time. He's tirelessly, incessantly working. This is a premise of the Bible. This is why you should be able to go to bed at night. Because God, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, watches over his people. God, who gives orders to the morning, makes sure that the universe is up and running before you are. You rise early and stay up late in vain because he gives sleep to those he loves. The insistence of Jesus when he heals people on the Sabbath. And it's infuriating to those who have contempt for him and who are interested in him obeying strictly the laws of the Sabbath and not realizing that the Sabbath was made for men, not men for the Sabbath. Says, my father is at work to this day and so am I. My father never stops working. He heals and he guides and he sustains and he forgives and he works tirelessly, arranging and rearranging, just like he did in Joseph's life. Even the most awful things which he himself did not send, but which he himself can do judo on, to turn the power of the evil into something salvific, something redemptive, something hopeful, something good. God is always working, tirelessly, arranging and rearranging all the aspects of your life. And why is he doing that? Well, to bring about, to realize the remarkable aspirations that he has for you. And as you hear him say that, as you hear him say, he works in all things for good for those who love him who have been called according to his purpose, it's really helpful to remember, as we go down the passage as well that Sarah read, that there's a great kindness of the full disclosure of the Bible that tells you more than any podcast you're ever going to listen to 
and more than any self-help manual that you're ever going to run across, that your life is not going to be an unbroken chain of successes with your skin getting better and browner and your teeth getting wider and your hair getting fuller. You're not going to just have an unbroken string of A-pluses and 1600s on SATs and banner years for your company. Life isn't always going to go well. You know this if you've been alive for a minute. But it's fun and sweet that the Bible would tell you that. In fact, it would insist on it. Uh, Tim Keller says the reason that Jesus suffered was not so that we would never suffer. It's so that in our suffering we'd become like him. And see, that turns out to be what God's aspiration for us is, which we'll get to in a moment. But in the meantime, the apostle's giving you this full disclosure, this, this advertisement, a public service announcement in Rome that we get to hear in Durham that says, hey, you know what? Sometimes life is going to be, like Pierce Pettis said, too true to be good. She walked away just like Jim Brown when his wife left him. When he lay that football down, and walked away because he could all the way to Hollywood. She walked away so sure and fast into her future, into my past. Just like I always knew she would, it was just too true to be good. And the Bible says there's going to be a lot of things that are too true to be good. You're going to feel them. They're going to rattle your bones. They're going to cause a nausea in your gut that won't go away. They're going to come in the form of migraine headaches and sleepless nights. In fact, that's part of why Paul's saying, I want you to know how not to have hard thoughts about God who's tirelessly working to arrange and rearrange in all things to make you like his son. And he says this love that God has for you is inseparable from you. And so trouble... Hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. None of these things, he said, will separate us from the love of God because you're going to be convinced when these things come that you are being separated. When it's too true to be good, Paul wants you to remember that God is operational. That he's acting. And he has the capability and the intention of working it all out for good. And of course, one of the dangers when we hear this, and one of the things that can get us derailed, and it's why we need each other, is that when you hear this kind of promise that he's going to work everything out to the good, you're going to make that synonymous with the the bit of glib advice that sometimes works out, that when God closes a door, he opens a window. Well, that's sometimes true enough. But it's not always true. The good that God is going to rearrange in your life isn't always going to be apparent next Tuesday afternoon. You might get a chronic disease that can't be healed or won't be healed on this side of glory. The apostle has just said, and again, it's so actually encouraging to me. I'm a gloomy fellow. 
But it's encouraging to me that Paul's saying these things about the adhesive love of God on the tail end of saying, here's what Christian life is. It's just like they say on TBN. If you have enough faith, you're going to groan. Don't you hear him say that? If you have enough faith, you are going to groan and you're going to pine and you're going to clamor for God and you're going to want so much more of Him than you can actually apprehend and you're going to feel like, as, uh, as one spiritual writer said, you're going to feel like an amputee wishing you could throw your arms around God's neck but you don't have the capacity to do it. You're going to groan and you're going to not even know how to pray sometimes. You're going to suffer. You're going to be characterized by lack, by deprivation, by not wanting what it is that you have and having what it is that you don't want. That's what faith is, Paul says. That's that's us suffering with Christ, our suffering making us like Him in hope of a glory, reversal and renewal that will make it all worth it. It won't, won't even be worth comparing to. And so when these things come, we have to remind ourselves that God's tirelessly arranging and rearranging. Sometimes we get to see it in the midst of the bad stuff. And you can pray that God would help you see it. You know, there's a place in Paul, in Corinthians, where he says we were under the sentence of death and in our hearts we despaired even of life. We were utterly, unbearably crushed. And then he says, but this happens so that We might not depend on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And he'll continue to raise us. Well, so that's exciting. That's a thing worth praying. Paul's always praying, open the eyes of their heart. Let your eyes be enlightened so that you may know the hope, the riches of the inheritance that you've been called to. Ask God to help you to see. Ask God in the middle of trouble, help you to trust. Ask God to help you to count on his arranging and rearranging for what he's up to. And sometimes you can see it, but sometimes you can't. And sometimes you don't get to have it all worked out neatly by the end of the workday on Friday. But God is tirelessly arranging and rearranging all the aspects of your life, even the worst ones. And if you realize it's not going to happen overnight... Are you not always going to figure out what exactly what it is? You're going to have to count on God's character for it. Then the other thing you'll do is you'll make sure not to use this in a weaponized but well-intentioned way on suffering people. Remember how I jokingly said earlier, somebody's told you this at some point and you wanted to hit them in the nose? Well, you know, a lot of God's truths are like penicillin. Penicillin is a wonder-working drug that destroys viruses, infection. It obliterates them. And so many of God's truths applied at the right time to the right people obliterate the infection of unbelief entirely. It's awesome. But penicillin at the wrong time to the wrong person can be deadly. And that's what these kind of words can be to a suffering person if they seem to be taking the suffering not so very seriously. God is tirelessly arranging and rearranging your life to realize his remarkable aspirations for you. And the things that are too true to be good, he's not going to do it necessarily in a week. It's not always going to be apparent, but you can ask him for it. 
And we shouldn't always impose these things on other people, especially when what they need is to lament and to cry out. But the other part of this is that part where he says what God's purpose is. And this is the rub for us. This is where we get stuck in this whole, in all things God works together for good. It doesn't match up to us because there are plenty of things, aren't there, that you've prayed about that would be good. How can the death of people who are precious to you, how could that be good? How can God work that to good? How can it be that God is going to work to good and letting you not have the job that you wanted? Or letting you be so frustrated at the job that you have? How can it not be that God would decide to revolutionize your marriage that you think stinks? Or the working situation that you're in? Or the roommate situation that you're in? Or the body that you're in? There's some of these where we think, If you really liked me, God, if you're really God, why aren't you doing something about this? And it's important to hear this qualification that Paul says, For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. God has a much longer-term aspiration than you do. And this is an aspect of his love. And it's incredibly important to see that, or you're not going to make it through any suffering in any substantial way. When you love someone, you aspire to things for them. And the reverse of that is, there's nobody that you love that you are just content to see them not become who you think they ought to become or who you think they could become. Are there any parents here who are saying, man, I am praying and pleading and expecting, I'm believing the Lord, that my children are going to grow up, they're going to grow up to participate in fake sex on the internet, They're going to participate in fake war on the internet. They're going to be glued to our basement couch wearing cargo shorts with their hat turned around backwards. And they are going to not have any relationships with any actual humans. Oh, I can't wait to see that be realized in their lives. I hope they never get a job. I hope they never meet a human and interact with them meaningfully. I hope they never do anything for anyone. I hope they just sit around and play video games and meld with the console. That's my aspiration for them. Are there any parents in here who long for that for their kids? I'm calling defects if you do. Does anybody in here hope that their husband will just stay glued to the recliner watching the Braves his whole life? I hope my husband never speaks to our kids. I hope he never talks to them or, or to me. Oh, that would be awesome if my husband just never interacted with anybody in the house. Whoo, that's what I aspire to for him. I hope my boss is, is callously indifferent to all the people who work for him. He doesn't, doesn't ever listen to what anyone says, ever. I hope he stays puny in his concerns and neurotic in his self-protection so that he hinders the growth of this company. That's my chief expectation. You see... When you aspire, when you love somebody, you aspire to things from them. You want growth. You want them not to disintegrate by sin. You don't want them to be decimated by excessive self-concern, 
by slothfulness, by envy, by lust, by anger. You don't want those things for them. You want something different for them. You want something better for them. And Paul, who is saying, I have become convinced. See, because he thinks these are things you can know. He starts this chapter saying, we know that in all things God works together for good. And at the end, he says, I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor demons nor the present nor the future nor any power, neither height nor death nor anything in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is convinced of it. It's the bedrock that he stands on. It's the seat that he rests all his weight on. And with that love comes an aspiration, becomes a motivation of God. He wants you to become like his son. You're foreknown predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, Jesus. That's his aspiration. And can't you see how there might be some conflict from time to time when you're frustrated about your work and God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it, though you pray and plead? Well, but you're concerned about having enough money to retire comfortably and like the man on Fargo, the FX version, who said, I never wanted to think about big issues. I just wanted to stack of pancakes in a V8. Sometimes the highest aspiration we have is just to be left alone and have a stack of pancakes in a V8. I just want to be able to have vacations. I just want to be able to sit comfortably in front of a big screen TV. I just want to be able to exercise as much as I want and be as felt as Pastor Eric and all that. But you know, God wants you to be like Jesus Christ. Uh, that's pretty lofty aspiration. It's a remarkable aspiration that he has for you. Which might explain why some of the stuff that comes in your life doesn't leave immediately. God wants you to become like his son. Now, in our time, we should address it. People, especially American people, get very agitated, hopefully not Presbyterians, but they get agitated when they hear the Bible say things like, God foreknew and he predestined you to be conformed. And I just wanted to say a word about that. It's silly to be agitated about that. Okay. Now, I'll say more than that. (laughs) But it's as silly as a child saying, coming out of the womb and freakishly being able to talk one minute into their existence on the planet. And looking into her mother's eyes as she lights up and and showers this little baby with liquid affection as tears run down her face and she beams with joy at this little one. And the little one saying, I don't want you to love me. You don't have to love me yet. I want to choose you as my parents. I want autonomy in this situation. It would be asinine to think that a baby should want that. The whole way it's set up is that babies... And good homes are pre-loved. They're pre-loved before they did anything, good or bad. Before you knew if they were going to be really pretty or just, you know, frankly, quite ugly. <laughs> just kidding. You love them. You love them before they exist. That's why they can destroy you. Because you started loving them and attaching your affection to them before they could do a thing, good or bad. You don't care what they turn out to be. You're going to love them and they can't make you not. And that's what's so hard about parenting, and that's what's so wonderful about it, and what's so painful as well. 
But God, Paul says, you're pre-loved, so sorry. It's actually a good thing because on your own you never have chosen God, but he chose you. And he has a lofty aspiration even higher than the aspirations you have for yourself. You just want a good paying job so you can go on fishing trips. He wants you to be like Jesus Christ. He wants you to be free from any bias in your own favor. He wants you to walk through the earth and not be eaten up with yourself. He wants you not to be mastered by every single vice that you have. He wants you to be ruled by happy love for other people. Not always being suspicious of them, but able to give to them. Not always feeling like you've got to huddle and defend, but being able to warmly give yourself away like his son Jesus. And so we're in a process, Paul said, it's good, it's done. Because those he foreknew, he predestined. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. It's as good as done. You're going to be made new. That's his aspiration for you. And so strong is it that even when suffering comes, and sometimes when it comes, we don't just question God, but we start to question ourselves. Maybe God hates me. Maybe he's getting me for what I did or for what I should have done and didn't. And Paul wants to say, who's going to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Uh, Hello? God's the one who can condemn. God's the one who justifies. God's the judge. And the judge has already said, you're mine. You're acquitted. You're forgiven. I am engaged in a process with you and I'm not going to stop. So nothing can separate you. And the trouble that comes is not because God's trying to get you. It's because he's relentlessly, tirelessly arranging and rearranging the moments of your life so that he might realize remarkable aspirations for you. So here's a test case in a few situations. And we'll close. Plans and vocational choices. Those are a thing that people care about from time to time. Sometimes when you're faced with making a plan, you, you either hold on so tightly to that plan, it must be realized or your life is over, or you won't make a decision because you're so scared about the weight of what happens. You want to keep your options open. You're afraid if you choose right, you should have chosen left, and then you'll be destroyed. Well, the apostle would say, and we know that in all plans... God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Every plan that you have, whether it's realized or not. You know, the Proverbs says some version of this as well. In his heart a man makes plans, but the Lord directs his steps. You can plan stuff, plan stuff. Sometimes they come true, hallelujah. Sometimes you go on vacation, you come back, you still like everybody. Fantastic. But sometimes... Your plans don't work out. And sometimes, as you've hopefully experienced in your life, things you didn't even plan for worked out really extraordinarily well. Because after all, sometimes a blind pig does find an acorn. Who do you think directs the blind pigs? The one who's working all things for good. So it can depressurize your decision-making. It depressurizes it by helping you to know, make a, try to make a wise choice, pray about it, seek counsel, and then decide and trust that God 
with your plans can arrange or rearrange, rule or overrule, he's going to work it out for good. Or what about your vocational choices? I assume most people in here are phenomenally happy with the vocation they're in, and they walk around saying, I can't believe I get to do this, and this is what I know I was made to do, and I'm stuck here, and I'm so happy to be stuck here. They pay me enough, they esteem me enough, I have all the clout and honor that I want. That's my pastoral assumption. Everybody feels that way. Does anybody feel that way? But it's possible that your plans for your work are that, that you might be esteemed in a certain way. You might be held in a certain kind of honor. That you might make a certain kind of salary. Well, those are fine things. Maybe you get to do them. But remember, God's up to making you like Jesus. So it's entirely possible that the precise place that he intends to conform you to the likeness of his son is in the job you have right now. At the address where you live right now. It's entirely possible. Parker Palmer talks about a clearness committee where he was offered to be a president of a university. And he had always wanted to be a president of a university. And they were asking him questions. This wisdom committee asking him about vocational stuff. And as they asked him and asked him and asked him, he said... They came to the conclusion, you know, it doesn't sound like you actually want to do any of the things that a president of a university does. Why do you want to be a president? And it came to him. Oh, I only want to be a president of a university so that it will say after my name, comma, president. That's why I want to be a president. I don't want to do any of the things that a president does. I just want to be called president. Well, that's how we approach things sometimes. But God wants you to be like his son. And he knows the happiest thing. You know, his son is the exact representation of his being. He reflects, Jesus, he reflects God brilliantly and perfectly, and he wants us to do that. And so for some of us, that might be in a high-profile way, and some of it may be in a low-profile way, depending on the way we're thinking of it. But God is interested in who you become and how he created you and knows that's the happiest way you'll ever be. So in all vocations, we know that God works for the good of those who love him. And this also lets you throw away resentments and regrets. You know, regret is in the species in the scriptures of worldly sorrow. And if you follow it on your Waze app, the scripture says it leads to death. It takes you right to death. Regret is when you castigate yourself for something you think you should have done better or some way you should have intervened and you didn't. I can't believe I didn't say something to her. I can't believe that I let him do that. I should have made the shot. I should have not cheated on that thing. I should have not been so honest. I should have been more honest. You castigate yourself for something that went wrong, taking all the pressure on yourself. But God, who is in the position to condemn, has not condemned you and can take even the things you should have done and can turn them to good, all of them. And in fact, not only can he do it, he's going to do it. He is doing it. That's why regret leads to death. You don't have to entertain your regrets. You just have to count on God to redeem your regrets. And the same thing with resentments. 
You know, and a resentment is when something happens to you that you have deemed so bad that it can't be fixed. It can't be altered and it can't be redeemed. And so you, you rehearse it and you nurse it and you ponder it and you keep re-feeling it over and over and over and over again because you've decided life can't go on with this thing. You've decided that God can't have a role in redeeming any parts of it. And Paul would say he's actively arranging and rearranging everything, even the worst things. The sorrows you know now are not worth comparing to what you're going to know. So we can say that God, we know, works in all our regrets and all our resentments for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. I heard at a funeral this week my friend Brian say, If we had God's power, we presume that we would change everything. But if we had his wisdom, we would change nothing. And that's what the Apostle Paul wants you to use on yourself so that you don't have hard thoughts against God. God is tirelessly arranging and rearranging all the aspects of your life so that he might realize his remarkable aspirations for you. A man was at a prayer breakfast in the country in Mississippi. And he asked an old distinguished farmer among the group, a mature believer, if he wouldn't do the morning prayer. The man agreed to do it, and he started out by praying. And he said, Lord, you know I hate buttermilk. And the preacher opened up one eye and started looking at him, thinking, what's going on here? And the old man continued. He said, Lord, you know that I hate lard. The preacher opened both eyes at this point to stare on with confusion. He's losing control of the room here. But the old man continued and said, and you know that I also hate raw white flour. I can't stand it. The preacher is in a state of panic at this point. Pops a Zantac. Heartburn. And as he was ready to stop the farmer, the farmer makes a turn, a sort of eucatastrophe of the prayer. And says, but Lord, when you mix them all together and you bake them up, Oh, I do love fresh biscuits. Better than Augustus McRae and Woodrow F. Call. So, Lord, when things come up we don't like in our lives and when life gets hard, when we just don't understand what you're saying to us, we need to relax and wait till you're done with the mixing. And probably it'll be something even better than biscuits. Your Lord is mixing the ingredients of your life, just as he did in that colossal miscarriage of justice in his son's life, the one he's trying to make you like. And he flipped it on its head and turned death into life, injustice into justice, contempt into mercy. He's actively arranging and rearranging all the ingredients and aspects of your life to make you like that. And the suffering you endure now is not worth comparing to them good biscuits we're going to have with them later.
comment.